We stopped in Matthew 18 at this point um, with now Peter coming up. Remember, earlier in the chapter, Jesus has talked about how do we forgive someone. So I gave you that little rhyme, first you go, then two go. If that leaves you in the lurch, take it to the church. So if your brother sins against you, you go and show them their sin. And if they still are not turned, then take somebody with, along with you. Um, and although it isn't, a, isn't a specific number two, you can take a couple people with you, little delegation. And if they still refuse to repent, then take it to the church. Um, and then we move on to the last stage of discipline, which is excommunication. Um, but here now, after all of that, then Peter comes up and asks Jesus a new question. So Jesus, Peter came up and asked Jesus, Lord, how many times must I forgive my brother when he sins against me? As many as seven times. And I kind of wonder if Peter thought he was being generous with seven. Um, I know I would think I would be generous with, with, with seven if, uh, if a guy keeps doing something you know, over and over. When I was little, we learned the adage, fool me once, right? Shame on you. Fool me twice. Shame on me. That seems like that's just two. But now Peter says, how about seven? And Jesus said to him, not seven times, but I tell you as many as 77 times. Uh, when you were younger, did you have somebody tell you, maybe in catechism class or Sunday school or something, that we don't know what this number is? It could be 77 or it could be 70 times seven. Were you told that at some point? I would like you to know that hebdomecantas, or rather hebdome cantacus hepta is 77 in Greek. It isn't really 70 times seven. It's 77. Um, and just to be sure, I looked that up in my trusty Crosby and Schaefer uh, uh, New Testament, or rather uh, uh, elementary Greek textbook uh, that we, we learned from when I was in college. Pastor Ailhoffen and I had the same textbook. Um, his is in better shape than mine. I don't take good care of books, I think. Um, but um, anyway, uh, there it is. So, and this is, I'll just to let you know, that I think some people are thrown by the form, but numbers are, let me just test your grammar for a second. Numerals are one of two kinds of words in almost all cases. They are usually, like colors, adjectives, correct? Is it a brown horse or are there four horses? Those are adjectives, right? They're describing a noun. Here we have an adverb. And the form of, the, of, of, of this term, hebdomecantakis um, hepta, is an adverb, which is how many times should I do this? So that's why this unusual form gets used rather than the adjective form or the adjectival form. And we end up with this do it 77 times, which is because it's modifying a verb, becomes an adverb rather than adjective. Clear enough? All right. I love grammar. Maybe you don't, but I do. I do. Do you? Okay. Well, you also love mathematics. Not you? Okay. Well you're good at well you're good at counting anyway. So okay. But I am I am more of a grammar guy than a math guy. But 
All right. For this reason, this is Jesus continuing. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle them, a man who owed him 10,000 talents. A talent is several pounds of silver. That's, and 10,000, several pounds of silver is a lot of money. We would, I, I think we would say millions of dollars, something like that. Um, 10,000 talents was brought to him. How did he amass that much debt? That, well, it's a parable, so I'm not going to get an answer, but wow. Um, because the man was not able to pay the debt, his master ordered that he be sold, along with his wife, children, and all that he owned, to repay the debt. This is not a good day. Tax collecting day, right? Or debt repaying day. Then the servant fell down on his knees in front of him saying, Master, be patient with me and I will pay you everything. The master of that servant had pity on him, released him and forgave the debt. So he said, I'll pay you back. The master knew you can't possibly pay me back. So the master forgives the debt. He wipes it out, cancels it. Um, as a part of this parable, I think we sometimes forget is that it, it actually, the debt got wiped completely away. Um, but then, when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him, who owed him 100 denarii. Couple dollars? Not much. It, like 12 or 13 dollars or something. It's hardly anything at all pittance. He grabbed him and began choking him, saying, pay me what you owe. You remember Lucy grabbing Charlie Brown and rattling him until he actually makes noise? You owe me restitution. Or is that Sally? That's Sally. Because he cheated her out of Halloween night by sitting in a pumpkin patch. Right? Okay. Anyway, so began choking him, saying, pay what you owe me. So his fellow servant fell down and begged him, saying, be patient with me. It's the same the same exact thing be patient with me and i will pay you back but he refused and said he went off and threw the man into prison until he could pay back what he owed meanie right this is ridiculous when his fellow servants saw what had happened they were very distressed they went and reported to their master everything that had taken place then his master called him in and said to him you wicked servant I forgave you all that debt when you begged me to? Should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? His master was angry and handed him over to the jailers until he could pay back everything he owed. So he got the debt put back onto him after this. Uh, and then Jesus continues, this is what my heavenly father will also do to you unless each one of you forgives his brother from his heart. So we go back to the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. So he has forgiven us much. He wants us to forgive all of the pittances, all the little things that we are owed in this lifetime as well. Forgive, forgive, forgive. Anything else there?
Okay? Chapter 19. And now we have, uh, as we now have this journey down to Jerusalem, which is going to end up on the cross, we have basically two kinds of stories. Either Jesus is moving closer to the cross, or he's moving us with parables and so forth closer to an understanding of how God gathers the kingdom and what the end of the world will be like. So we have parables or action happening pretty much from here on in. Now when Jesus had finished saying these things, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. Now Judea beyond the Jordan has a different name. So you see here on this map, uh, the, the green doesn't concern us, the blue is the, is the ocean or the sea. Uh, the, uh, is it gray or what would you call that where Judea and Galilee are? Is it white or gray or something? I, I don't know, whatever it is. And the Decapolis is orange, but that purple region, which is Perea, uh, uh, is this area that we're talking about now. It starts basically at the city of Gadara. Um, remember the Gadarenes are where Jesus encountered that one demon-possessed guy, or rather on the way to the Gadarenes. Well, that and then down to the Dead Sea, to the shore of the Dead Sea, is this other area that's kind of connected to Galilee. In fact, the same Tetrarch, which would be Herod, Herod ruled Galilee and Perea. He did not rule the Decapolis. He did not rule Samaria. He did not rule Judea. But he ruled Galilee and Perea. And so they're not exactly connected, but they're close enough where it's just a, a couple hours walk from the border of one to the border of the other one or just down the river if you want um, and go that way. Um, but that's, that's where Jesus now is. And Jesus will remain in Perea until he crosses into Jericho. And from there on in, we're getting to Holy Week. Okay? Also, I'm just going to add that a, a story that's in John's Gospel, but not here in Matthew, is the raising of Lazarus from the dead. That seems to have happened right before Jesus entered Perea. So that account belongs about here. But then John skips a bunch of things, like the entire Perean ministry. And so we, get it, we have to go to Matthew to get this. Okay? So that's what we're, what's happening now. So large crowds followed him and he healed them there. So Jesus now doing healing miracles in this region where he hadn't really been before. It's the last part of Israel to see Jesus. He's been everywhere else. He's been all through Judea. He went into Samaria for a while. He entered the Decapolis at different times. He's been all through Galilee and even way up north to Tyre and Sidon and so forth and up into Mount Hermon and so forth. Well, now finally, he's across the Jordan in this area that we're, we call Perea. The word Perea, um, I'm pretty sure, doesn't occur in the New Testament or in the Bible at all. But we know it's called that because it gets called that in other sources. So Perea. Um, uh, incidentally, I had somewhere why it gets named that. I wonder if I had this on your sheet or not or somewhere else that I had. But it basically means, it, it refers to para, um, your Dane. And par, the para part of this 
is uh, is uh, a cross or next to her. Oh, it's the footnote on page one. Peran to Jordanu, the other side of the Jordan. So that's where they shortened it up to Perea. Right. Do any parts of New Ulm have special nicknames? Goose Town. Wall High. Where's that? Okay, I live on South Jefferson. Further south. South, south. Beyond that giant rock. Okay, okay, okay. Wow, I didn't, I didn't, I never heard that one. Any other things? Like there's the camel's back right up on the hill. Anything else? Any other little divisions that we should teach Christine about? Kind of it? Okay. Okay. Wall high. Walla high. Walla high. Okay. There is a marker there. There is a marker. There is. Okay. Oh! You mean, you mean the Wallachie. Right? That marker. Walla high. It says Wallachie on it or whatever, right? Right? That's what it says. So now I know how to pronounce it. Now I know what you're talking about. Okay, all righty. And then there are uh, where uh, Rotowalds used to live is the ravine where the natives gathered before the attack on New Ulm. Did you know that happened in Gene Rotowald's backyard? I mean, he wasn't there yet, but that's where that took place. And then we have uh, the other one, which is... Um, Oh, it's leaving me now. There's one other little region that has a special name in this city. But I'm, I'm forgetting what it is. Oh, Paradise. It's 8 South Jefferson. That little spot there. It's the best place in town. It happens to be where I live. It's absolutely gorgeous. Yeah. I told the boys I was going to go out pretty soon with a can of spray paint to spray my lilacs to show next summer how high the snowbank got on my lilacs back there, because it's higher than I could reach from the ground um, back there right now. Let's continue. All right. I needed a little levity here because of what we're about to address, which is divorce. So Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? So not only, I don't know where I found this, but I, I, I did find it about 15 years ago. So not only this cause, right, which is unfaithfulness, that's a weird picture, or this cause. What is that second one? Burned the chicken, yeah. And that's the actual test case that one of the Pharisees gave of, of why you could divorce your wife because she's trying to kill me. She burned supper. Um, and the, the guy who came up with that was the man named in the Bible. He was Paul's teacher. You remember his name? Gamaliel. That guy is in the Jewish, in the, in the Mishnah. I should have brought it. I have it in my office. 
Um, it's on one of my bookshelves. And, it's, and in there, he's named for, for bringing this up. This, that, that what, if, what if she burns my supper? She's trying to kill me. I can divorce her. What a culture, right? And Jesus answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning? Where does Jesus go for his proof of marriage? Every time it gets brought up, Jesus goes to the first marriage. Let's go back to the original marriage and, and see what God says. So have you not read that he who, made, who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So Jesus lays it out there. This is what happens. Uh, a man and woman come together as a new couple. They cut their other family ties. That's not to say that they uh, are going to break the fourth commandment and so forth, but they are a new family now. So their focus should be on one another and not uh, uh, constantly doing whatever mom and dad tell us we ought to do, but rather they have to make those choices and decisions uh, for themselves, and he will hold fast to his wife. Um, it was cleave in the the English translation that came before the King James said cleave here. I was always fascinated by that word cleave, which has two meanings that are the opposite in English. To cleave is to join completely inseparably, or it is to separate without the possibility of, of restoring. It's what you do with a meat cleaver, right? So one or the other. But that word cleave means both things in, in early modern English. Um, so uh, uh, hold fast to his wife inseparably, and they shall become one flesh. Not two, not three, but one. So no longer two. What therefore God has joined together, let not man or let no one separate. We include that last line in our marriage vows to this day. Um, before I go on, uh, anybody want to ask a question here or make a comment? Where did Cain find his wife? That would have been his sister. What? That would have been one of his sisters. Keep in mind that the laws... The sanguine laws forbidding marriage to one's sisters and so forth did not come until Moses. So until after the flood. Um, in fact, about 500 years after the flood. So before then, there were no, no sanguine laws. They would have had to have done that. Ray Frederick, um, I, before Rachel, uh, I had asked a couple of people to help me figure out how many human beings were in the world when Adam and Eve had their last recorded child, who was Seth? Right? Those are the three names you know from Adam and Eve, Cain, Abel, and Seth. Well, Seth, we find out, wasn't born until Adam and Eve were 130. So Eve is still, forgive me, cranking out the babies at 130 years old. Um, and I wondered how many human beings might have been alive at that time. And uh, uh, I, I had asked uh, Philip Wells and some other 
uh, math geniuses. I had, Kath had tried to figure it out on paper once kind of longhand. Um, and uh, then Ray Frederick came up with, a, with an algorithm. And we, what we did was we set up what the criterion probably would have been. So a, a, apart from Cain Abel, two sons born in a row, let's just pretend con to, to get a conservative number um, that Eve was having boy, girl, boy, girl. No Irish twins. So no two children born the same calendar year, right? So boy, then girl, then boy, then girl. I think we even gave Eve a year in between kids. But no twins, no Irish twins. So just one child at each birth. And after Eve, because Eve is born already a grown woman and able to have children, at whatever, whatever physical age she was when she was created by God, 14, 15, 17, I don't know. But then her daughters would begin to have children, and we decided to, to, to be very conservative. We went with 18 years old, not even, not even 16 or 15, but 18. Um, and they would have boy, girl, boy, girl, boy, girl, um, and so on. And we ended up with, when Eve is 130, when Seth is born, that for a long time, there are hardly any people in the world, right? It's a bell curve. Do you know what a bell curve is? A bell curve is flat, then it goes way up, and then it kind of comes way down. Well, in this case, it's the first half of a bell curve because you're going to go from hardly any kids at all, just a couple that Eve has, until finally they start having babies, and then the thing starts to ramp up. And then right at Eve turning 130, that thing just skyrockets in the last couple years. And you have lots and lots of kids. And you end up with, it's around 40,000 people in the world in year 130. It's just amazing um, that, it, that, it, that it swoops up like that. And then evidently, though, uh, it, it kind of topped off. And probably because of war and other things, but it, it, it seemed to top off after a while. Um, but, uh, but anyway, those, those wives and so forth would have been... And even, even Abraham, living only about 400 years before Moses? Even Abraham marries his half-sister. And nobody says anything about it. You know, so that's what they would have been doing. That was a different issue. No, not because she was his sister, but because he lied. Sort of the king of Gerar. Yeah, this, of the deception. Yeah. Yeah, good. Good. Verse 7 and 8. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And he said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. So Moses just does mention a certificate, some kind of a document they would sign. It might have been clay. Um, in those days, a clay document was um, a, uh, just a, 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 a sort of a lump, like a miniature pillow. Can I describe it that way, of clay you would write on? And that would be encased in another piece of clay. So you'd have to break the outer clay to get to the inner clay to, to read the actual signed document. But they would stick a cord or something in the original and then out of the 
surrounding piece that would come out and that would be attached to what a, um, a clerk of court today would call a fair copy, which would be a copy of what's inside the unbreakable or the, the part you'd have to break to get to. And it was readable by everybody, but it was not the legal piece. It was there, but it wasn't the signed one. The signed one is hidden away so that you could tell if somebody had changed the document because they would have to have broken the seals, broken the outer case, and then changed the, the inner case. You can't just do that. So it was, a, it was their way of doing security with these things. But it would be kind of a clumsy thing, a, a, a rope or a cord or a piece of linen attached to two pieces of clay, one smaller than the other. Does that make sense? They would hide or store these then, and you'd, you'd put that in the back of your house somewhere, your certificate. That would be a certificate of marriage, certificate of buying various fields and different certificates of debt and whatever. But for divorce, the same thing. You would have to produce a certificate of divorce to divorce one's wife. Um, of course, the thing here was that in the law of Moses, for certain kinds of unfaithfulness, the punishment was death, not divorce. But a husband could divorce his wife. And one of the cases that Moses gives that you may not know about or may not have read about recently is that in a time of war, a soldier could grab a girl from the country that, or the city that lost the battle and take her as his bride. But if he wasn't happy with her, he could give her a certificate of divorce and send her back. So if she was taken as a spoil of war, there was like this, I don't even know what to call it. We don't have anything comparable in our language, but kind of a... Incentive. I was going to say like a test period, you know, where you know, hopefully he wouldn't do that, but he might do that. And, and so on. Okay. Verse 9. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man and wife, it's better not to marry. And the disciples are getting kind of down here, aren't they? Well, if you can't divorce her for any reason, then why get married? Well, because God's design for marriage is to stay together for your whole life. And the exception clause here in verse 9, except for sexual immorality, would apply to more than one kind of, of sexual immorality. It would be unfaithfulness, but also for a specific kind of immorality. Um, in, uh, in ancient times, uh, there were people who got involved in all, in all sorts of perversions. And if you discovered, if a man discovered uh, that his, his spouse, his wife, was uh, uh, on the side, not just sleeping with a man, but maybe with a livestock or something like that, he could dismiss her for that as well, and so forth. There was, however, evidently very little a woman could do to divorce her husband. But you do have the sexual immorality or unfaithfulness clause. So she would have that possibility as well. In other countries besides Israel, there was practically nothing at all that a woman could do. Only in Israel do you have it 
a law stating that a wife could divorce her husband for, for unfaithfulness at least. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth. And there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. So a eunuch is a man who has had his manhood, that is his testicles, cut or crushed. Um, they did this for various reasons in ancient, in ancient times. What's probably, can you think of it, the most famous reason that they would make a guy into a eunuch? A guard for the harem. A guard for the harem, exactly. In more recent times, a more bizarre reason in the Middle Ages was done for making a man into a eunuch. So he could sing soprano. They're called the castrati, the castrated ones. And if a, a boy had an exceptionally beautiful soprano voice, they might castrate him so he would retain that for the rest of his life. Um, there are some pretty famous pieces written for castrati that are almost impossible uh, for, for any grown man to sing. I sang one in seventh grade. Um, it's called If Thou Be Near. Um, you may have heard that piece, except it's an octave higher. Um, I ended up taking it, uh, 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 I, I, did, I did better with it on my trumpet than with my voice. But I did it twice. I did it with the words and one, once with the trumpet. It always bothered me that my uh, this, this, this is classes for you, not for me to get counseling. I'm going to say it anyway. So uh, it, it, did, it did irritate me that my, um, at solo and ensemble, when I did play it on my trumpet, uh, the judge criticized me. He said, this sounds too devotional. It's a love song. And I did not have the courage to tell him, it is devotional. It isn't a love song. It's a love song to God, but not to a girl. And uh, I didn't say that, and, I, and, and therefore, I was not able to take it to state because he didn't give me a starred first. So, but that's okay. No one remembers his name now. So, that's, <laughs> Luther's criticism of his critics is always, no one remembers who they are today. Um, so, eunuchs from birth might be somebody who was, who, who, who had something happen at birth or whatever. Eunuchs, who have been made eunuchs by men, and that would be this, this issue of, of, of the castrati or especially of the guard for the harem. Um, uh, by the way, that doesn't work. They also found that out in ancient times. You cut off a man's testicles, he still has eyes. You know, um, and he might still have desire. He can't do a lot about it, uh, but he can, still have, he can still have desire and still get into trouble. And then there are eunuchs who have been made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. That is not castrating themselves, but to um, reject the idea of, of, of sexual union or marriage for the sake of the kingdom of God. And who would be one of those in scripture? No, no, not priests. They were all married. All the priests were married. No, I'm thinking of Paul. Paul. 
Paul uh, in Galatians says, do only Barnabas and I have to, take, have to work for a living? All the other apostles get, their, get to take their wives along with them when they go places. And Paul didn't have a wife. Um, I'm going to let that stand just as I said it and not go further with it. But, yeah. uh, but no, Aaron, the, the first high priest, the other four priests were his own sons. So, no, they were all, they were, the priests were all married. Yeah. Or did you mean priests today? Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, that's a perversion. That's not scriptural. There's, there's nothing in scripture that says that a, a, a minister or a priest should not get married. In fact, most of 1 Corinthians 6, 7, and 8 says that he should. Yeah, because bad things happen when he doesn't. You've been listening to Invisible Church, the Bible study podcast from St. Paul's Lutheran Church, New Wall, Minnesota.